the dean of conservative political columnists and, far more important, perhaps the finest baseball writer in America. Shooting today in Austin, Texas, George F. Will on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. George F. Will has been one of the nation's leading political writers since landing a column in the Washington Post at the age of 32, more than four decades ago. His twice-weekly column now appears in hundreds of newspapers and on dozens of websites. He's written more than a dozen books, including his classic work of political philosophy, his 1983 Statecraft as Soulcraft, and the baseball books Men at Work and a nice little place on the north side. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Two quotations. George Will in May 2017, quote, it is urgent for Americans to think and speak clearly about Donald Trump's inability to do either. This seems to be not a mere disinclination, but a disability. That's quotation one. Here's quotation two, it's longish, but it does a lot of work. The Canadian publisher and historian Conrad Black writing in today's New York Sun. George Will is one of the country's outstanding polemical writers, but he should not be squandering his talents on misrepresenting the president. That but does quite, carries quite a load, doesn't it? The president has done his best to enact the program the voters approved when they elected him. He has appointed judges who believe they should carry out the law and not current political reinterpretations. He has drastically reduced illegal immigration, reformed and reduced taxes, deregulated, stimulated economic growth, succeeded in gaining China's serious cooperation with North Korea, and armed the Ukrainians. He has assisted by raising oil production by 5 million barrels a day. With a more suave individual enacting the same policies, George Will would be an appreciative supporter. Sir, you object to the lack of suavity. I do object to the persona, which I think is what he's talking about. And I think what my old friend Conrad doesn't recognize is people voted for Donald Trump because of the persona that I find offensive, destructive, and dangerous. That is, the fact that he breaks crockery and offends people uh, pleases certain other people. Now, Conrad Black's been around long enough to know that Donald Trump didn't personally increase our oil production. I've not seen the petroleum stains on those small hands. Uh, I don't, I, the fact that, I mean, that long uh, discourse from Conrad was in large measure an exercise in the post hoc propter hoc fallacy. The rooster crows and the sun rises, therefore the crowing of the rooster causes the sun to rise. Uh, Certainly Donald Trump has done a few good things. The stop clock is right twice a day. Uh, but that's largely because the Republicans were teed up in Congress and elsewhere with a deregulatory agenda. He had outsourced to the Federalist Society the selection of judges, which produced Mr. Gorsuch. We can gauge Mr. Trump's understanding of the judiciary from the fact that in one of the debates during the 2016 primary season, he said in defense of his sister, a federal judge, in defense of her conservatism, he said, she has signed some of the same bills as Justice Alito. We have a president of the United States who thinks judges sign bills. 
which is to say we have a president who would flunk a sixth grade civics exam. Um, I'm quoting you once Strong again. Strong letter to follow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quoting you once again. Trump lacks what T.S. Eliot called a sense not only of the pastness of the past, but of its presence, close quote. I think we can probably stipulate that Donald Trump is not himself familiar with T.S. Eliot, but what do you mean by that, by quoting Eliot to that effect? He has no sense of history, no sense of the momentum of events that has brought the Republic to this point. No understanding, as far as I can tell, of the majesty of the house in which he lives, the great moments that have occurred in the Oval Office that he occupies. Uh, no sense, that is, of the great arguments we've had about America, where we should go, how we should do it, the actual competence and proper scope of government. All of this is a blank slate to him. Mm. Let, me, um, let me try another couple of arguments on behalf of Donald Trump. I'm on the mound, you're at the plate. Let me try a few couple of pitches here. Those achievements that Conrad Black listed, Donald Trump may not have increased oil production by five million barrels a day, but he did help the federal government take its foot off the neck of the energy industry. That is to say, the stock market is not booming because of his investments, but because we now have an administration that is no longer anti-business, Neil Gorsuch, there are achievements, some of them may be modest in the sense that he's caused the federal government to stop doing harm. Uh, he may simply have outsourced the appointment of federal judges to the Federalist Society. Nevertheless, he has done those things, and those are all in the conservative direction. And if he were quite such a dolt and quite such, a, quite such an ideological scramble, how could he have done it? Because we are a party system, and the uh, Republican Party is a reservoir of certain good impulses and a lot of talent. When a president is elected, as you know well, uh, immediately he has to fill about several thousand yes. policy-making jobs. A Democrat has a pool of talent from which to pick, and a Republican has another pool, and the pools are really different. And uh, Mr. Trump, who has lit upon the Republican Party briefly as he rents it, uh, is the beneficiary of the virtues of the pool of Republican talent and the Heritage uh, uh, Foundation, the Cato Institute, and the American Enterprise Institute, and the intellectual infrastructure built by the conservative movement over the decades to account for the fact and compensate for the fact that conservatives are largely excluded from the intellectual infrastructure of academia. It was there and waiting, and uh, uh, it, it benefited him and it benefited the country. And is it the corollary to that that he will, at sooner or later, and perhaps about now, have run out of the agenda that was teed up for him to follow? I think so, uh, for reasons having very little to do with him. First of all, most presidents have one year. They can push their agenda, as Reagan did. Reagan got his tax cuts in 1981. And then it was essentially, if they work, I'll get a second term. If they don't, I won't. And he turned his attention elsewhere. Same is true for Mr. Trump. If, uh, if uh, Justice Kennedy decides to come back to California, 
and he has another appointment to fill, that will be uh, important. I, I happen to believe that Mr. Trump probably would not have been elected if Scalia hadn't died when he did. A very large number of people said, I don't like Trump, but I do like Republican judicial choices. Therefore, I will vote for him. And if they hadn't had that incentive dramatized by the death of Scalia, this would have been different. So. One more little uh, sally here. I think it's, you would agree that all truly useful political analysis begins and ends with a Henny Youngman gag. <laughs> Question, how's your wife? Answer, compared to what? And so the weakest argument on behalf of Donald Trump is still an impressive argument. He prevented Hillary Clinton from becoming president, and he ended eight years of rule by a Democratic Party that by this point was firmly in the hands of the Elizabeth Warren left. Yes. And therefore, we should be grateful to him or to fate or to whatever produced him. And we should also be trying to make the best of this difficult situation. I'm trying to make the briefest of this difficult situation. <laughs> Let me make clear, I did not vote for Hillary Clinton. I voted for Ben Sass, senator from Nebraska, and would relish the opportunity to do so again. You're quite right, we had a miserable choice, the most miserable choice in the history of our republic. We had never in American history had a major party nominee going into the general election with disapprovals higher than approvals in 2016, we had two of them. Now, on balance, I would probably still prefer that Hillary Clinton had won for the following reasons. Gorsuch is better than Merrick Garland, but not a lot better. Merrick Garland was a distinguished judge who would have filled that seat. And the fact that he didn't is a tribute to Mitch McConnell, not to uh, Donald Trump. Uh, second, under our splendid system of checks and balances, Hillary Clinton would have been checked and balanced to a fairly well by Mitch McConnell, one of the great legislative mechanics in the history of the Congress, who would have made her life appropriately miserable as the founding fathers made possible. Uh, so for these reasons, uh, I think it's probably on balance better to have Mr. Trump with one enormous asterisk. And that is, it's going to be a lot harder to repeal and replace the coarsening of our civic culture that he is bringing about than it has been to repeal and replace Obamacare. All right. A word or two on that. You've written, Andy Ferguson quoted you in his profile of you in the Weekly Standard, quoted you as saying, appearances matter. It simply won't do to say, well, we like his program, but not his persona. The two are now inextricable. But how can that be? A, a nice summary of the Obama years is that for eight years, a gentleman enacted bad policy. Can't it be the case that a vulgarian enact good policy? Yes, of course. But the, there is a social cost to the vulgarian. Uh, the promiscuous lying, the lying with no purpose. I mean, everyone lies. Politicians lie, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad, but usually for a reason. There was no reason for him to say, I mean, it's how he began his presidency, remember? This photograph, you're gonna believe me or you're a lying eyes. <laughs> I mean, this photograph doesn't show that I had a smaller inaugural crowd than Barack Obama did. What, this matters. 
disparaging your opponents, uh, the, the coarseness, the kind of fourth grade schoolyard taunts. Now, and looking on the bright side, yes. as I am disinclined to do, <laughs> but looking on the bright side, one of the good effects of Mr. Trump is he's going to deflate the preposterous inflation of the presidency as a moral leader. I don't want a president as a moral leader. I want him to be one of the head of one of the three branches of one of our many governments. I want him to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. That's about what the Constitution says his job is. And then not to be looked upon as a moral exemplar. If we stop looking at presidents this way, as a result of him, this will have been an unintended benefit. All right. And so whether we see the back of Donald Trump in two years or six, what, pro what, will, be, what will have been different? In other words, Richard Nixon leaves and the, and the Republic recovers. Uh, Lyndon Johnson did all kinds of damage to the constitutional structure, the great society and so forth. He was personally vulgar in all kinds of ways. He leaves, the Republic moves on. Uh, what, 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 what is the price that, what, that you expect us to pay? I, I'm, again, mildly cheerful because I think the political antibodies are at work now, that people are reassessing the role of the presidency. Some people are saying, well, you know, maybe the presidency has become a little too swollen in the post-Teddy Roosevelt, post-Woodrow Wilson understanding of executive power. Uh, I think the country may snap back. Indeed, if the Democrats, <laughs> if the Democrats are wise, uh, they would nominate someone, I don't know who it is, who would say to the country, Elect me, and you won't see so much of me. Elect me, and we'll all take a deep breath. And we'll say, uh, uh, the fate of the republic is not put at risk every morning when the sun rises and morning Joe comes on and people are all excited about something. World's not that exciting. Government's not that exciting. Government's not that central to you. And I, 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 you'll see me on Inauguration Day and a few times afterward. And by the way, I'm going to cancel the State of the Union address. It's a terrible idea. So you won't see me those times at primetime television when you'd rather be watching something else. Uh, if the Democrats are smart, they're going to nominate someone who says, just calm down, everybody. Deep breath. Because my feeling is the American people are said to be angry. I don't think they're angry. I think they're embarrassed, and I think they're exhausted. Mm. And... If the Democrats, again, big if, if the Democrats are wise, they'll play to those problems. So you don't have a candidate yet, but you do have a slogan, vote for me, I'll be dull. Boredom is great, yes. Your 1983 book, Statecraft is Soulcraft. A few words on your political philosophy here. What I have seen in a dozen years in Washington, now more than four decades in Washington, what I've seen in a dozen years in Washington has strengthened my conviction that ideas have consequences and that, and that the contemplation of ideas is an intensely practical undertaking. Explain that. Uh, when in the late 40s and early 50s, the modern conservative movement began to grow, one of its canonical texts was by a man named Weaver at the University of Chicago, and his title was Ideas Have Consequences. I believe that only ideas have large and lasting consequences. Only that. I mean, the, the Black Death had consequences. 
but people recovered from it. And the world was changed because they thought about the world a little differently. They thought differently because of this horrible trauma that killed about a third of Europe. Ideas matter because our parties either represent ideas or they represent factions and they represent appetites. Pat Moynihan, uh, the greatest pleasure and privilege of my decades in Washington was knowing Pat, who was my best friend. Pat said in the late 70s, he said, something momentous has happened. The Republican Party has become the party of ideas. And at the same time, the Democratic Party had become the party of factions, of identity groups and interest groups, and you dealt politics that way. Now, Ronald Reagan came along and said, no, politics is about some big ideas. And I happen to credit uh, the real founder of this impulse, uh, the man for whom I cast my first presidential vote, the junior senator from Arizona, Barry Goldwater, 1964. Again, statecraft is soulcraft. It is generally considered obvious that government should not, indeed cannot, legislate morality. But in fact, it does so frequently. It should do so more often, and it never does anything more important. That's correct. Uh, the subtitle of the book, Statecraft Asoka, is what government does. Not what government ought to do, but what government can't help but do. Mm -hmm. Because when you form a regime, including an economy, a free market economy is a government construct. It requires assumptions, contracts, laws, and monetary policy. Uh, Laissez-faire is planned, Pogliani once said. It's a great jest, and it's a profound truth. When you do this, you're going to have a certain kind of citizen. Just follows night to day. Virtues are habits, said Aristotle, and habits are the result of the way we live. And a free market society causes people to live in certain ways, to develop certain virtues, thrift, industriousness, deferral of gratification, all the rest. One of the great arguments, the great argument that began our Republic uh, between the anti-federalists and the federalists. The anti-federalists understood that the federalists wanted a national society, not local agrarian yeoman republic like that Jefferson. They said, we are arguing not about institutions, but about character, about the nature of the American person. And the federalists won and we got what we wanted. We got uh, we, 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 we speak like Jeffersonians, we live and act and are governed like Hamiltonians. And that explains Tocqueville, who comes in the first third of the 19th century, and he writes brilliantly about the institutions, but first he writes about what strikes him, which is the way the people behave. Yes. He, he, de Tocqueville went down the Ohio River, and on the north side was freedom. On the south side was slavery. And he says you can, on the one side was crackling with energy, the other side wasn't. One more quotation from Statecraft is Soulcraft. The United States acutely needs a real conservatism characterized by a concern to cultivate the best personas and the best in persons. It should express renewed appreciation for the ennobling functions of government the ennobling functions of government. The students who will graduate from the University of Texas at Austin this spring 
or from the University of Illinois will have been born a dozen years after you published this book and five or six years after the fall of the Soviet Union. Here's what they've witnessed. Here are the functions of government with which they've grown up. A failed war in Iraq, an endless war in Afghanistan, a financial crisis in 2008 that made the federal government look hapless for years afterwards, the sheer ugliness of the presidential campaign of 2016, and that doesn't even begin to get us to the ugliness of the impeachment hearings that'll take place beginning in December or so if the Democrats capture the House in November. What do you say to the generation that has been formed by this experience of government to persuade them that government should be, can be, ennobling? I tell them that the government that they have experienced is failing American norms. That is, it's failing to live up to the founders and to the great men and women who have built the country before this, that we don't need to look outside America for judgments that properly judge harshly against what, what they've experienced. 1968, I believe it was, George Wallace is running for president. And he said, we got too much dignity in government. What we need is some meanness. Well, Wallace has won. We've got plenty of uh, meanness and not enough dignity. But it's not always that way. I mean, when I'm dictator of this country, <clears throat> I only want it for an afternoon. First thing I'm going to do is the only permissible college major is going to be history. Mm. And what I want them to learn from history is contingency. Things didn't have to turn out this way. Things turned out as well as they did because certain brave people took risks and made sacrifices. Statecraft is soulcraft. You've mentioned history. Let's talk about history. But the history that begins at about the time you published this book, it's been said that the trouble with the younger generation is that it has not read the minutes of the last meeting. So let's, let's read some of the minutes to them. You published this book in 1983, early in the Reagan years. I experienced this problem with my own children. I wonder how, what conversations you've had with your son David, who's about the same age. It's almost impossible to make them understand what the country felt like in the late 70s. Mm. With high inflation, with the Soviet, the Soviet Union was on the march, and we felt a sense of retreat and declining morale, failed in Vietnam, Watergate humiliation. And then in the 80s, there's a national renewal. It's economic, it's, it's spiritual, or it touches on morale, if that's the proper way to put it. And in the end, it's the Soviet Union that's so demoralized, it simply chooses to go out of existence. Now, what do you say to the current generation, to the generation that just missed it, that they ought to understand about Ronald Reagan in those years? Well, what I say is that proves that people matter. William James once said, there's very little difference between one man and another, but that little difference makes a huge difference. Yeah. 1970s, you referred to stagflation. We had in this country something that all the best economic minds, left, right, and center around the world, said could not happen. We had stagnation and inflation at the same time. Right. We had a misery index. You added the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. It was over 20. 
And Ronald Reagan came along. At this point, we had people saying, you know, that America's ungovernable. And the presidency is too big for any one person because Jimmy Carter made the country look ungovernable and the office looked too big. Ronald Reagan came in and said, this is fun. Let's go writing. Uh, he, he said, this is not, you know, Reagan was, said, people are always telling me there are no simple answers. There are a lot of simple answers. It's just not easy answers. So he lightened the weight of government and he made people cheerful. You know, come back to persona. Dwight Eisenhower's cultured despisers used to say his smile was his philosophy. Well, I'll tell you something. What Ronald Reagan understood was that when you're smiling, when American people are happy, good things happen. When they're cheerful, they invest, they have children, they stay in school, lots of good things happen. Persona matters. Happiness matters. A president who talks about American carnage gets one kind of American uh, attitude. Ronald Reagan, morning in America, gets another. Statecraft is soulcraft. I will do many things for my country, but I will not pretend that the careers of Ronald Reagan and Franklin Roosevelt involve serious philosophical differences. Close quote. Explain that one. A, I was wrong, but let me first say. <laughs> All right. <laughs> first, uh, remember, Ronald Wilson Reagan uh, took aim at the Great Society. Yes. Not at the New Deal. Correct. He did not challenge the basic social safety net, social security being emblematic of it. Uh, I do think I was wrong in the sense that uh, Roosevelt, if you go back to his Commonwealth speech in San Francisco as a candidate, and all the way to his economic Bill of Rights, new Bill of Rights that he proposed in 1944, uh, Roosevelt really did reverse what Reagan understood. Reagan was a descendant of the founders who said, well, the most important word in the Declaration of Independence is secure. All men are created equal, endowed by their creative with certain unalienable rights, and governments are instituted to secure those rights, not to give us our rights. First come rights, then comes government. And government is inherently limited by its function of protecting natural rights. Franklin Roosevelt really was a progressive. He came to Washington first as um, um, Assistant Secretary of the Navy under the great Satan Woodrow Wilson. Uh, <laughs> I exaggerate somewhat. Uh, and uh, uh, Wilson really believed, and the progressive believes, that rights are conferred by government. And what Franklin Roosevelt said in his, some of his speeches was, there's a transaction, government will give you certain rights and you will perform certain obligations as good citizens. That's reversing what the founders had in mind. So I was wrong. So you were wrong. <clears throat> it was the first time for everything. I'm, I'm thrown, but I will try <laughs> to recover. Uh, continuing reading the notes of the last meeting, a couple of points about the, the fabric of society. Charles Murray, coming apart. Whereas the American middle class used to represent a common culture, now it's broken down. We see not only uh, degrees of inequality, but different patterns of existence. The more educated you are, the more likely you are to attend religious services, to get married, have children in your marriage, to stay married. Less educated, out of wedlock births, 
less sense of community, and so forth. That's one. Here's the second. Family life, or the existence of family life. In 1965, your best friend, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, published the famous report, The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. And he was talking about the disintegration of the African-American family, particularly in the ghetto. He spoke, I, I happened to find this on YouTube. That was, you can do a lot worse than spend a few moments looking at old, old Pat Moynihan appearances on Meet the Press. He spoke of a massive deterioration of the fabric of society right under our prosperous noses. When he published that report, the illegitimacy rate among African-Americans was 25%. Today, the illegitimacy rate among white Americans is over 30%, among Hispanic Americans over 50%, and among African-Americans over 70%. What happened? We don't know. Let me add some sobering statistics, two more. 40% of all first births in the United States today, regardless of race, color, creed, national origin, 40% of all first births are out of wedlock, and a majority of women under 30 are not living with the fathers of their children. Now, when Pat published that report, he knew it was such dynamite. He was a 38-year-old uh, social scientist in the Labor Department when he commissioned the report. He knew it was such dynamite, he said, I want only 100 copies of it. Uh, printed, and it took until August for it to leak. What he said was, the lesson of history is clear. From the wild Irish slums of the East Coast in the 19th century to South Los Angeles today, when you have a large cohort of inadequately parented adolescent males, no fathers in the home, you have chaos. You have unruly neighborhoods and schools so busy trying to maintain discipline they can't teach. I've raised three boys. I know the whole point of civilization is to civilize adolescent males. That's what the whole thing's for. And Pat understood this, that the family is, always has been, always must be the transmitter of social capital, the habits, mores, customs, dispositions that enable people to take advantage of the opportunities of a free society. And when the family fails, a free society must fail. Now, you said, what, what, we don't know what caused it. Therefore, we don't know what to do about it. It's a little bit worse in the United States, but it's true in Portugal. It's true in Wales. It's true in Sweden. That we are, at this moment around the globe, having a marvelously stupid social experiment. Let's try to do without the family. But as if I could, Charles Murray, the, the greatest living social scientist, uh, makes the point that we're now becoming a bifurcated society, yes. that marriage is a kind of trophy of the middle class. Yes. Uh, Charles likes to say um, if he wishes people would preach what they practice, that is, the, the bourgeois elements live by bourgeois values, but they, they somehow feel the need to be transgressive at cocktail parties and elsewhere and say, well, lifestyle choices are choices and who cares and what's the consequence? No. Preach what you practice. You don't want to make the argument that modern capitalist society is self-dissolving. That somehow or other it's the very nature of our success, of our material success at least, that undermines 
the family? It's a, it's a possibility. All right. And here, here's why. Uh, uh, 50 years ago, one of uh, Pat Moynihan's friends, Daniel Bell, yes. published a book called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, in which he said, capitalism, which depends on certain stern virtues, thrift, industriousness, deferral of gratification, encourages opulence, who's echoing John Adams, encourages wealth, encourages self-indulgence, it undermines the moral prerequisites of capitalism. That's as far as Daniel Bell went. We can now, having seen the family as a casualty, we don't know a casualty of what, but a casualty of something, we can now say, well, you know, maybe capitalism by, uh, makes us dissolute, makes us uh, self-indulgent, undermines restraint, as bad for the economy. Uh, I think it was Daniel Bell said, you walk into any department store, you come in the front door, and you walk right by the perfume counters because they're designed to stimulate your senses and get you in the mood to spend, consume, and not defer gratification. All right. <clears throat> the amiable atheist. George Will right? <laughs> You've called yourself that. Yes, of course. George Will, writing this spring about abortions in Iceland that have virtually eliminated births of babies with Down syndrome in Iceland. Quote, Iceland must be pleased that it is close to success in its program of genocide. But before congratulating that nation on its final solution to the Down syndrome problem, perhaps it might answer a question. What is this problem? Close quote. Yeah, but it, Iceland, this is a, an aspiration to end a category of human beings. That's, if that didn't genocide, what is? Um, and uh, I simply asked, uh, what are the Down syndrome people doing to Iceland? There are only about four of them born a year over there because they, they, they use uh, prenatal testing as a kind of search and destroy mission to find these dangerous Down syndrome young people. Uh, I don't know what they're worried about. All right. And you've written over the years about your own son, John, who has Down syndrome, and about the beauty of his life. I found this 2012. This year, John will spend his birthday where every year he spends 81 spring, summer, and autumn days and evenings at Nationals Park. In his seat behind the home team's dugout, the Phillies will be in town, and John will be wishing them ruination, just another man, beer in hand, among equals in the Republic of Baseball, close quote. Now, here's what I don't get. You call yourself an atheist, an amiable atheist, but an amiable atheist is still an atheist, and yet you resist somehow the sheer materialist utilitarianism of, let us say, a Peter Singer, who writes, and I'm quoting him, that species membership is not morally significant, a board away. And yet, unless I mistake you, you impute value to human life as human life. Good humans, bad humans, they're humans. Yeah. That's, that's an almost, that seems to me that you're almost suggesting that humans have a sacramental value. Where do you get your, where do you get that as I an atheist? I think they have value. All right. I, don't, I just don't think you need a theism to have an ethic. That's all. All right. <laughs> 
You know, Christopher Hitchens gave me the same answer to that question, although he was quite cross about it. My grandfather on my father's side was a Lutheran minister in uh, western Pennsylvania and northern Maryland. And my father, who became a philosopher and a non-believer, as a young child would sit outside Pastor Will's study while Pastor Will and some of his parishioners wrestled with the problem of reconciling grace and free will. They weren't the first or the last to worry about this, but it's sort of inherent in the problem of Christianity particularly. Uh, Were I to say, as many people do, that you can't have virtue without theism, then I'd have to say I didn't have virtuous parents, and I did. So I'm just looking around the world and saying, that's false. There are just lots of very good people in the world who, who have no theism, no belief in transcendence. I'll, I'll take one more stab at it and then shut down because you've thought about this more than I have. But where do you, how do you decide if there's no external, no objective scale of values, where do you get your values? How do you know virtue when you see it? I think there are objective standards. That is, uh, there are natural rights. That is, right ways for living for people of our nature if we are going to flourish. That's natural rights reasoning without theism. I think that's probably about the best an atheist can do, so I'll let you stop. (laughs) It's good enough for me. (laughs) George Will, writing last year about baseball. I have saved the momentous for last. Yes. Baseball. Quote, one of the six games of the 1948 Boston-Cleveland World Series was one hour and 31 minutes. 91 minutes for a whole baseball game in the World Series. The average in that series, two hours. This year, that is to say last season, this year the average nine-inning game is three hours and four minutes, up four minutes from the year before, and up 14 minutes from 2020. Major League Baseball's worry, however, is less the length of games than the decrease of action, batters putting balls into play. This season, more than 30% of at-bats are ending with walks or strikeouts. Or home runs. Or or home runs. That's the ball not in play. Not in play, all right. In in one of baseball's greatest games, the Pirates' 10-9 victory over the Yankees in Game 7 of the 1960 World Series, there were no strikeouts, close quote. Excuse me, no, I have one more bit of this. Major League Baseball's worsening pace of play will not attract generations shaped by ubiquitous entertainments, close quote. You may want a presidential candidate who's boring, but you most assuredly decry that baseball has become a bore. It's not boring. Ah. It's gone too slow, but it's not boring. As the great Red Smith said, baseball is dull only to the dull. Uh, I read a whole book on baseball because I wanted to know what was going on out there. No one had written it for me, a book called Men at Work. Yes. Uh, It may not be the, I think I've told the, the best-selling baseball book ever. I've published 14 books. It's sold more than the other 13 combined. I figured out what America cares about, and that's a sign of national health. But anyway, uh, part of the length of the game has to do with longer commercial breaks, but that's a small part of it. Part of it is that we know so much more. That is, we know that the third time a pitcher goes through the batting order, he shouldn't. That's he's worn one. out. He's, he's worn, worn out. out. Yeah, with just the analytics. Major League Baseball teams, all 30, are now run by kids from Dartmouth and Amherst and Princeton who, who 
peaked in baseball at Little League, some of them in T-ball, but they know their analytics. They know how to use numbers. Uh, something happened over the winter. Uh, we now have seven major league teams that pay their bullpen more than they do their starting pitchers because baseball learns. They learned, don't let them go through the third time through the lineup. If you're Kershaw or, or uh, uh, Scherzer, fine. But if you're not a genius, don't. Baseball learned. You went back to that game in uh, 1960. Mm-hmm. Ten to nine, no strikeouts. A, a related fact about that game. There were two pitchers who were 5-6. Bobby Shantz and Elroy Face. People are bigger. They throw harder. We've recently, and I mean the last three years, we've made a big discovery. If you change your launch angle as a hitter, you're going to hit a lot more home runs. You can have all the defensive shifts you want. The first great defensive shift was to stop Ted Williams, a pull hitter. Right. And Lou Boudreau, the Cleveland Indians, that player manager, moved a guy over, an extra infielder, to play short in the outfield. So they had four people on that side of the infield. Ted Williams said, they can't make the shift high enough. I'll just hit it over them. Uh, baseball, like, see, there's a lesson for society here. Baseball adapts. It's a Darwinian world, and baseball says, you're doing that? We'll do this. We'll figure out a way around this. Baseball five years from now will be different. That fast. But that fast. Because these are smart people. And, and there's money at stake. And there's yeah, great incentive to win. Let me try this on you. Mm. <clears throat> Major League Baseball may tinker with this rule or that rule, but it's just the wrong game for the day. It's genteel, it's slow, it is nonviolent. This is the age of football. Big activity, large human beings, violence, made for television. And you respond how? That football, we will look back upon and say it passed its apogee about five years ago. First of all, the human body is not made for it. The human brain is in a pan, it's not attached, it floats in the skull, and it is the joints and the cartilage and the tendons, but most of all the brain are not made for football, sorry. Second, as I have said many times, football combines the two worst features of modern life, violence and committee meetings. Committee meetings are called huddles. Uh, but go back to the, the sheer safety. I, in my neighborhood in Washington, young parents with their children on tricycles, and the tricycles are pushed by a long pole, they put crash helmets on yes, them. You yes. think they're going to let them play football? No. I don't think so. Those moms are not up no. for that game. Baseball is, um, is the right game for America, partly because said it, it's sort of polite. It's a, it's a civil enterprise. It's not full of people beating their chests. It has a common law that it enforces by itself. The unwritten rules, you know, if you, you show off, they're going to tell you, to, they'll not teach you in various ways not to. Uh, baseball's not the uh, sport for the 45th president, perhaps, but uh, there'll be others. All right. Uh, we are shooting this conversation on opening day. And if I read you aright, at this stage in your illustrious career and illustrious life, there are two teams that matter to you above all others. 
What are you expecting for your Washington Nationals this season? The Washington Nationals will win the uh, National League East. They play the Phillies, the Marlins, the hapless Marlins, the not-so-hapless Mets, and the rebuilding Braves 19 times apiece. They're going to get to the postseason. All right. And um, this splendid book, A Nice Little Place on the North Side, is about Wrigley Field and the Cubs, who won a World Series, causing you, I believe, to reset quite a large portion of your view of the universe. Is so with, with metronomic regularity, every 108 years, the Cubs <laughs> win, the, win the World Series. Yes. So we're in year three of the 108 to go. Is, right. that, is that what Cubs That's and fans should expect for this year? All right. <clears throat> Last question. One final time, statecraft is soulcraft. In AD 410, barbarians sacked Rome, and Augustine, a born pundit, reached for his pen to write The City of God, his reflection on the collapse of the Roman world. My undertaking, this is George Will talking, my undertaking is also Augustinian. I am concerned about the possibility of a kind of slow motion barbarization from within. Close quote. 35 years later, where do we stand? 35 years later, Still, the fundamental conservative insight is nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Empires don't last. The continental plates are drifting around. Nothing lasts. But that's perhaps grounds for pessimism, but pessimism is not fatalism. Uh, the intelligent pessimism, which is another name for conservatism, is to take auxiliary precautions against the natural tendency of things to decay. We have talked a moment ago about uh, John Adams and Daniel, Daniel Bell and others saying every system contains the seeds of its own undoing unless, unless you recognize them and take prophylactic measures. Mm. And I, I said that's the last question. I've got maybe one or two more, but they're related to that. I can recall a conversation I had in 1979 with Malcolm Muggeridge, the great British journalist. And Muggeridge compared himself to Augustine. And he said he felt himself in the position of Augustine, who from North Africa watched the collapse of the Roman world. And Malcolm Muggeridge assumed that the Soviet Union would win and we would lose, and that he was simply watching the collapse of the civilization he loved. And he was wrong. The 80s came along. And Whitaker Chamber was wrong when, Whitaker, when he said, when they left communism, he's, uh, I'm, I'm going over to the losing side. Right. So what, from the perspective of the date of 1983 when you published this book, what is there to be said about the sources of renewal on which we could draw today? The fact that the American founding, the best thing that ever happened to the human race, the American founding is so rich in lessons and principles that we have unlimited recourse to that reservoir of example and thought to renew our country. George, I wonder if I might ask you to close by reading a passage from Statecraft as ah. Soulcraft. In a world that is increasingly inhospitable to the ideas and disciplines of liberty, this republic continues to live improvidently off a dwindling legacy of cultural capital, 
which was accumulated in sterner, more thoughtful eras. That legacy is a renewable resource, but it will not regenerate spontaneously. Regeneration is a political choice, a political chore. If this republic is to long endure, it must work to improve the actuarial odds against the survival of civility in an untamed world. Politics involves an endless agenda of arduous choices. It can be thrilling and noble. Certainly a sense of the complexity and majesty of politics is indispensable to the care of our time. George F. Will, thank you. For the Hoover Institution and Uncommon Knowledge, I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you.